Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. We'd like to welcome back Sammy Gold, a friend of ours from New York City. Sammy, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Um, so, Sammy, our first question for you is, the American Rescue Plan Act has finally passed Congress in full. President Biden has signed it this past Thursday. However, there was no minimum wage increase included in it, and there was $100 less in unemployment checks. Do progressive circles still see this bill as a win regardless? Well, I mean, it does depend how you define the progressive left. I mean, you have your Jimmy Dore forced to vote. Uh, they're, they're hated in most mainstream left circles. And they will always, in my opinion, regard anything less than their own line as a loss. Right on with that, just anything the president does as a loss. So I think it's for them. But lots of left-wingers, me included, were disappointed by the $15 minimum wage not being included in the final legislation. It was, def- it was definitely a, like a dividing anger. Some people were like, very much, you know, this is going to help Trump. You know, you said $2,000 stimulus checks. You, you're, you're breaking a promise. Or people said 1400 plus 600 equals 2000 uh, I think overall, the bill is definitely a win for the progressive movement. It's the most progressive bill passed by, de- by a Democratic Congress since the Great Society, since President Johnson. It cuts child poverty in half. It provides billions of dollars, not just in vaccine funding, but also to to black farmers. It gives billions of dollars back to to states. It gives billions of dollars, I I, I believe, in infrastructure and into um, all tons of other places too, including making sure that union pension plans don't go out and that that they stay in place. Helping in with healthcare subsidies and and the Obamacare market being stable. It's a massive feat. And the fact that we can push a $2 trillion stimulus bill and within 50 days and the biggest attacks by moderate Democrats, Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, what have you, was that they said it needs to be paid for by higher taxes. That's an absolute win for the progressive movement. And it definitely shows that the Democratic Party of 2021, not the Democratic Party of 2009, when they had to lowball the stimulus in order to get them votes and they still lost in the midterms and, and helped lead to the rise of the Tea Party. So I would say it's a massive win, despite the unfortunate losses of the $15 minimum wage and of the lowering of eligibility of the stimulus check. So the other big reform going through Congress is the HR1 uh, for the People Act and the John Lewis mm-hmm. Voting Rights Act. It's looking like they're going to be stuck in the Senate due to the filibuster drama. What do you think about these bills? What do you say to the criticisms of particularly the campaign finance reforms in HR1 that eliminate anonymity for donors who give more than $10,000 to campaigns, which ACLU has criticized? And what should be done in the Senate about the filibuster? Despite what the ACLU says, and I have the highest regard for the ACLU, I will defend the ACLU on many points, but I think in this one, they're wrong. Of purely on the campaign finance reform, yes, there are massive problems with dark money funneling, not just into Republican candidates, but the Democratic candidates and other places that make sure that big business and crony capitalism uh, is constrained in the American political structure. And that needs to be changed. H.R. 1 is another brilliant bill created by the Democratic Congress. We know that in order for democracy to thrive, it must thrive for all. And for the Democrats to continue 
being a pro- prominent political party, they have to do these things, including make sure that nonpartisan gerrymanders are the norm, including having automatic voter registration. I believe it makes election day a federal holiday. Uh, among other things, it's an incredible bill. And now when we see attacks on voting rights done by Republican state legislatures in Georgia, Arizona, in Iowa, it becomes even more necessary. However, we are seeing a major problem, though. I think it will be a major problem for most of the Joe Biden administration, which is the status of the filibuster. As we saw in the $50 minimum wage discussion, the Senate parliamentarian, who will definitely be a thorn in the side of many progressives and many Democratic activists, uh, ruled that you couldn't put the wage in there. And that caused a rift, including eight senators, not just your usual suspects, Manchin and Cinema, but Coons and Tom Carper from Delaware, Jan Shaheen from New Hampshire, and Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire. You saw was that you have a massive rift here. You have a massive rift of what some senators, like Dianne Feinstein in California, their belief in continuing democratic norms and not being the norm breakingness to find the Trump administration. Or other people saying that this is a Jim Crow relic, it's going to harm our ability to govern, and it needs to be ended. And what we're going to see here is we're just going to see a massive disparity in what can be done. For in my opinion, is that the filibuster has to be ended, not just for HR one, but that the filibuster, as we know it today, is a not is not just a relic of the Jim Crow era, but it is a massive constraint on democracy. It hurts democracy. What is the point of electing a politician or a political party if they can't do the things that you elected them to do? What is the point of politics if it is just theater and grasping for straws and not having the action that is necessitated for a government to function? What you see is that politic for the past 10 years, as filibusters have risen, the amount of bills that the Congress has passed has gone down. Congress is now about theater. AOC, much as I love her, speaking for bills that will never get passed and having Ted Cruz talk about, you know, fighting for my 4th of July and seeing people read Dr. Seuss in the, in the House of Representatives, it all just becomes the, uh, the land of the culture wars. Well, what about reforming the filibuster? Even uh, Joe Manchin, fender of um, Senate norms, a Democrat, he's hinted that he'd be open to reforming it. And uh, political scientist Norm Ornstein with the former Senator Al Franken, they wrote that, you know, just flip the numbers, put the pressure on the Senate Republicans to show up and defend their filibuster rather than having, say, the majority now, the Democrats having to defend their bill, turning the tables. Would that be acceptable? I definitely agree with a lot of the reforms Joe Manchin said. In fact, I was surprised that he was as open to the reforms that he proposed. A speaking filibuster, I think, is a good idea. Frankly, it's fun to watch. It helped Bernie Sanders expand his career, but also it's one of the relics of the Senate. Seeing people speak for 24 hours or 12 hours about whatever, about some random law. It's fun to watch. It helps careers. And it's part of what makes the Senate an enjoyable thing. And it also helps create the speeches that help process and progress America. But a filibuster cannot be used to harm the political process. It should give the minority a right to speak. I fully believe in that. Democracy is not just the majority rules, but it's also allowing both sides to come to conclusions. I believe in the minority has a voice in the government, but it has to be logical. And I think that the performance that Manchin proposed were logical. I think, I believe he said the 41 senators have to be there to hear a filibuster and that a, fili- and that a filibuster is more under pressure of the minority to sustain it and not just what can happen today. You send an email and boom, a bill goes to die. Progressive data scientist David Shore released massive autopsy on the 2020 election. And it essentially said that the average liberal white voter is more to the left than the average liberal non-white voter. 
The push for progressive policies and phrases such as defund the police and the labeling of socialism by the GOP alienated more moderate, centrist, and conservative Hispanic and Black voters across the country and caused Democratic share of minority voters to drop from 2016. Given that the party line usually is growing minority populations will mean more Democrat voters, what's your general takeaway from this autopsy? Um, I think Shore has a lot of good points, frankly. Defund the police as a statement is one of the most unpopular political policies today. I think a recent poll by, I believe, USA Today said that 18% of the general population supports it. And even, I think, less BIPOC voters say they support it. It's frankly not liked. And I think as a party, it's a good idea to support policies that are liked. And I think what we see is that it's the, the, the Democratic Party has misunderstood their audience, I think, for too long. I think that for too long, they've been trying to apply themselves to the co- for, to college-educated voters and to kind of go to that, kind of to the higher minds. I mean, famously, I'm Michelle Obama at the 2016 convention saying, when they go low, we go high. You know, and I think that, well, I think there's a lot of general truth to that. You know, we don't want to call a, another candidate senile. I think what we also see is that it makes us feel that America is a different place than what it truly is. America is not racially woke. America is not this place like, like a university. We can state our social sciences and our gender studies and our racial studies, and we can all come to a mutual agreement. No, there's a lot of cultural conservatism in this country. And I think that if, as Democrats, we try to have, keep a populist economic message. $50 minimum wage is incredibly popular. Uh, universal health care and single-payer health care are incredibly popular. Free college tuition is very popular. More funding for unions, among other things, and the COVID stimulus bill. I think if we try to talk about how we are the party of the people that we've been since our founding in 1828, we have a varying sense of a cultural kind of background from, you know, talking about police reform and police defunding in places like California. But it's worth noting that for a lot of its history, the Democratic Party was the party of the KKK and the party of former Confederates that want to remain separate from the Union. I mean, isn't the Democrats' current platform of reform policies and pushing towards more affordable health care, pushing towards more reform, isn't that a fairly recent development in the Democratic Party's message? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the Democratic Party, if I'm going to be a little bit of a history teacher today, in 1824 when America was almost completely run by the Democratic Republicans, no relation to either party, um, you had a growing divide. You had John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, and he, and he promoted a more government funding for infrastructure, among other things. Uh, and he was seeing this as more party of the upper class, of the bourgeois. While Andrew Jackson, the war hero, the general, and a, foreign, and a governor of a territory, he was seeing that he's trying to break up banks to central power. He was trying to create more land and more areas for white settlers to take aim. And that was a populist message for the time. Is it good now? Hell no. But I think is what, what we see is that the, the, the Democratic Party has always had its roots in a more populist understanding of America, while the Republican Party from its founding in 1854 and onwards had a more one nation conservative, not primitive in the case, you know, like free markets, but in a conservative in the case that like hierarchies are, are necessary for all. And they were seen as that. I mean, even when the Democratic Party was led by economic conservatives and the KKK, from people like Grover Cleveland to Ben Tillman, who frankly is a terrible man, even then there was a sort of populistic message over there, led by William Jennings Bryan and the Free Silver Movement. While policies are changing, paradigm of political views change, the Democratic Party has its roots 
in a populist sense of America. You're saying that Democrats, that they should stick with the economic message they have. They've always had this populist streak. What do you say to the fact oh, that it, it, Biden's in office now, not Bernie? It's not the progressive populace. It's the establishment, more centrists that are in office right now. What you, and given that the country, used, it, it, your own mission is not woke. How do you square that with the likes of the squad, mm-hmm. uh, say the squad or Justice Democrats trying to get more national popularity, trying to gain more national base? How does that all work? How does the party really take those two sides with this current state of the country? Well, I just want to say two things. First of all, I think we should just follow the moment that Bernie lost all power. Bernie is arguably one of the most powerful men in Washington right now as the head of the Senate Budget Committee. To say that Bernie has lost importance, I would say is vastly um, misunderstanding. But I think we're going to go on. Um, talking about Biden. I would dispel the notion that Biden's a centrist. He's not a centrist. He might not be AOC's uh, identical twin, but he is not the Joe Biden of 2008. I will never forget one thing that Andrew Yang said at the 2020 Democratic Convention was that Joe Biden has the ability to make anything sound moderate just by the fact that he's Joe Biden. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you saw Joe Biden's platform, it was not Hillary Clinton's platform. In some cases, it was more progressive than Bernie's 2016 platform. He supported things like a $15 minimum wage. He supported things like a public option. His climate plan is the most progressive climate plan ever presented by a major presidential candidate in a two-way race. Changing ICE and, and, and immigration policy and getting out of Afghanistan, among other things. It was an incredibly progressive platform that we could dream of. But if you only saw Biden at the debates, you would have never known that. You would have thought he was the same Joe Biden of old, you know, the same Grandpa Joe going on Amtrak from the Delaware to D.C. while saying maybe not the greatest things about Black people in the Congress. You, you would have not thought that about him because he presented himself as a moderate. He presented himself as not revolutionary, but, but evolutionary. And I think there's a lot of importance and in in knowledge to be taken out of that, that if we can tie progressive economic messaging and tailor it to whatever the culture is in a state or in a country and try to present something as not a state of revolution, but as a state of evolution. I think we can, I think we can beat the Republicans in nearly every state, frankly, if you try to find the message, we can tailor it to each state. And I disagree that we need to be either for AOC or for Joe Manchin and that this kind of this massive polarity. No, I think all of them eventually work together into creating a broad Dem coalition that the, that the higher up leaders try to bring them all together. Some progressives and lefties and liberals who read, you know, Jacobin magazine might disagree with me, but I frankly think they're wrong. You're a New Yorker. So what's going on mm-hmm. for Governor Andrew Cuomo? He's facing impeachment and investigations over several accusations uh, involving sexual harassment and also the cover-up of COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. Do you think he should stay in office, resign, or be impeached? Who do you think should replace him next election cycle? His, his career is over, frankly. It was a long time coming. I'm happy it's happening, to be fair. But his career is effectively over. Ralph Northam was able to weather the storm, but Ralph Northam wearing blackface is not the same as Andrew Cuomo putting his hand up a woman's private parts. This is, this is maybe not criminal behavior, but it's immoral behavior, unethical behavior, and he deserves to resign. And people will say, though, that, you know, like, Cuomo, you know, he still has his legacy. He doesn't have a legacy in New York, frankly. He's always been an abysmal governor. He's always been a bully. And he's always been a terrible human being. He, he's the campaign manager for his father's campaign in the 1980s. And he helped, and as, his, as his campaign manager, helped create a letter saying, vote for Cuomo, not the homo. 
in 2007, he said, oh, Barack Obama needs to stop chucking and jiving. He helped the 2008 financial crisis and he was head of HUD by putting Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac into subprime markets. Well, progressives like you have always tried to already had a vendetta against him, but what happens now? I mean, should everyone wait for the investigations on both fronts should to be completed before, you know, something happens? What happens? Yeah, if I'm going to be a journalist here and not with my own vendettas, there's two things that are happening. What should happen and what will happen. What should happen is that, frankly, the evidence is already in the clear, not just with the sexual harassment, there's photos of it in frame. But the nursing homes, it's out in the open. You, you can hear the calls. You, you can see it with your own eyes. He has to resign. It's, ne- it's necessary for a New York governor to be understood and respected as a, po- as a politician. But, but some but, are saying due process. Some people bring up Al Franken that he resigned without you know, having his uh, investigation with the Senate Ethics Committee. What do, you, what do you say to that? Well, Al Franken was not, I mean, like, sure. But like, like the thing is that we didn't lose anything for Al Franken. I mean, Us Day by Me Too helped us win the Alabama Senate seat. And frankly, it's a good thing that we did it because he did because the Democrat even I think got even a higher support in 2020 Tina Smith than Franklin Franklin did in this last election. It was a, it was good and it was a good it was it was important for that to happen. And with due process, due process will happen. He will go in court. But as a governor, but I mean, here's the thing: if it's it's out of the open, you lose your ability to govern. This time of crisis, if you look at it at what he's done. I mean, 10,000 people at least are dead because of him, the nursing homes. So you're saying he should resign right now? He should resign right now, but I don't think he will. Is the lieutenant governor going to replace him next election cycle, or are we going to have a free-for-all of who's who of uh, Cynthia Nixon wannabes trying to take his spot? You're not going to see Cynthia Nixon wannabes just because her, I, you are going to be actual politicians going to run it. It's going to be a really fun election to watch. On the Republican side, you have Lee Zeldin, former Republican nominee of the New York City election, John Katz the founder of Christides. And on the Democratic primary, you're going to see a vast array. I think Letitia James will run, the current attorney general. You're going to see Jamani Williams running, the current public advocate. I think you're going to see Kathy Hochul run, who will be the lieutenant governor and possible next governor of New York State. And then you're going to see people like Mike Gianaris, Alessandro Biaggi, Ron Kim, maybe even Bill de Blasio, who said he's thinking about running. It's going to be a wide election. Bill de Blasio has an extremely low approval rate, so... Bill de Blasio won't win, won't win the primary. The mayor of New York City is famously the place where politicians go to die. You're asking me who I support? I would love to see State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. I think she'd be a great governor. But I think you're going to mostly see the top three contenders be Letitia James, Jamani Williams, and Kathy Hochul. Kathy Hochul is just Cuomo without the liability. So you're saying you should resign. There's going to be a crap ton of candidates on both sides of the aisle trying to replace them. Who's going to win? Do the Republicans have any actual chance of repeating Pataki? New York wasn't as liberal and as Democrat as it, as it is now. Like Pataki ran when, like 92? It's, it's, a, it's a very different time now. I mean, Giuliani was, was, was mayor then. No, like, no Republicans to be mayor now. I think there'll be maybe higher votes for Republicans than before just because of Cuomo's massive failure. But I think the question is, which way is it going to go? Is it going to go the more left-wing like, position that there is now in the state Senate, where there's more democratic socialists than moderates and centrists? Or is it going to go on that more classic Cuomoian case of trying to appeal to both sides? I think that's the big question you're going to see. 
about whether the Cuomo style of governance without the ego and without the just massive liabilities. I think the question is which way do they go? And for me, I hope it goes one certain way, but I don't know. Final topic is the New York mayoral race. I mean, what are your thoughts? Who are your top candidates for the position? Well, of course, they now have a ranked choice voting. I can actually give you my ranked choice voting. Scott Stringer, current comptroller of New York City, great progressive, strong guy, kills many sides. Dan Morales, a nonprofit leader. You have um, Catherine Garcia at three. She's the former sanitation commissioner. Maya Wiley at four, uh, MSNBC analyst and de Blasio aide, and Andrew Yang at fifth. But I think what we're going to see is we're probably going to see Andrew Yang as the next mayor of New York City. In polling, he's, con- he's constantly staying at that higher rate. I think we're going to see a Yang mayorality in the next year or so. I think the question is, is it going to be the Yang of 2020 presidential campaign? Or is it going to be Yang trying to appeal to a more moderate or just kind of appeal to a different side of demographic? I think that's the question that we're going to see. It's clearly not going to be a return to the de Blasio administration. Sammy, thank you so much for coming on again. It's great to have you. No problem. Always here. Last thing you want to say to our listeners? This is a great place. I think y'all have some great conversations in here. And I just want to say thank you so much for having me here. And I also just want to say um, one thing I read this week that I think everyone should read is that Vox wrote this piece four or five years ago, but I think it has more precedence now about the the, uh, welfare reform law that President Clinton signed in 96 about their effect on America. I think seeing now an almost complete tidal wave of change against that style of governance I think it's really important and impactful to see how that affected poor Americans and America as a whole. I think it's a piece everyone should read. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us and we hope to see you next time.